This Slate spoiler special is meant to be played after you see the movie being discussed. The podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with the Slate spoiler special podcast on Trainwreck, the new movie written by and starring Amy Schumer and directed by Judd Apatow. And joining me in the Slate studio is Anne Helen Peterson. Hi, Anne. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Me too. This is so great to have you in the studio. So uh, you are a features writer for BuzzFeed. Yes. And uh, I, we actually met once in person years ago when I was taping a Slate Culture Gab Fest in Austin, where you were in school at the time. Yep. And I have not laid eyes on you since. But since I've been <laughs> reading you and talking to you online, I sort of feel like we've developed a friendship over the past yeah, few years. Yeah, so absolutely. Nice to have you here in the flesh. Yeah. I also think you're the perfect person to spoil Trainwreck with, because I didn't realize when I was going to see it that Amy Schumer's character works for a gossip magazine. And you wrote your thesis on gossip and sort of this history of celebrity gossip. So, so Snuff Magazine, the magazine she works for... Was it seem like something that you would have have some insights on? I mean, that's a good question. Is it a gossip magazine or is it GQ? I guess I thought I felt like it was almost supposed to be modeled after. Yeah, what tabloid is even like that? It's more yeah. like a supermarket tabloid in a yeah. way. What she works for, and then, by the way, the spelling I love this is S apostrophe N U F F. So it's a, a, it's snuff, but it's also that's enough. Yeah, and but there's one point in the um, when they talk about you know who are we directed at? It's like the the incredibly confident male, like we're teaching him how to like have sex, buy clothes, be awesome. Right. I guess it's, yeah, it's a details or GQ yeah, kind yeah. of approach, but, but, like, but, but more tawdry, really tawdry totally headlines tawdry. like, you call those tits? Yeah. Or um, <laughs> are you gay or is she just boring? Yes. So there's a pitch meeting at the beginning where, you know, the, the, the tone of this magazine is established and it's fantastic. Also, I don't know about you, but it took me about a scene and a half to realize that Tilda Swinton plays the editor of the magazine because you never see Tilda Swinton like that. She's yeah. all made up with this awful spray tan. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, it's uh, great. I love it. And uh, and she's just this very bitchy kind of hard as nails editor. OK, so um, I usually before we get into serious plot spoilage, I just sort of get a reaction on the movie. So we didn't see this together. I don't know what you thought of it. Did you like yeah. Trainwreck? Oh, I loved it. I just I... I had high expectations for it because I really think that Amy Schumer's humor is very incisive and feminist and radical in a lot of ways. So, Do you watch her show? Are you a regular watcher? Yeah. And it delivered in so many ways that, like, not just the ideology that undergirded it. I really loved LeBron. Like, I think that he is a charisma machine. Oh, yeah. We have to get to LeBron. He's a big part of the movie. Maybe my favorite part of the movie. And it also has a lot of moments, like, kind of the best of... Judd Apatow style, where a joke really kind of goes to the next level in a way that, like, you know, you start laughing and then you start, like, losing it. Like, that's the sort of laughter that I get while watching this movie. Oh, I want to hear some of the scenes that made that happen for you. I mean, I would say in general, I also went in with very high expectations. I don't watch Amy Schumer every week, but, you know, I definitely, her her skits that go viral, I definitely see. And I was excited that she wrote the movie, that she not only stars in it, but that it's kind of her creation. Right. But in some ways, I felt like the movie didn't – there was more conventionality in it than I expected. It was a little too long, as Judd Apatow's films tend to be. Mm -hmm. And there were moments in which I felt like this isn't quite – it doesn't achieve the coherent vision of, you know, say, a movie like Bridesmaids or something. I I sort of felt like there were some extra scraps in there that didn't belong, which we can get to what they are. But on the whole, yes, lots of laughs, big laughs, and and a really, really great main character. So let's get into what happens in the movie. So Amy Schumer's character is named Amy, which is actually kind of a, a traditional comedy trope that reminded me of uh, Mary Tyler Moore or something, you know, a a character who 
a, a performer whose persona is so big that they can only bear their own name. You and know? like from what I understand, very much based on her own life. You know, not only just the fact that her sister is really integral to her life, but then also the presence of like her father is also has MS. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So the family structure is somewhat built on her family yeah. structure. Is her mother still alive? Yes. But I think, you know, like that uh, the relationship is secondary, I think, to the way that she kind of relates to her father. And right. her father is really central to the way that she talks about her family in interviews and, you know, there, her Instagram. There's lots of photos of him, that sort of thing. Ooh, I need to start following Amy Schumer on yeah. Instagram. Yeah. Um, so we should set up that family structure then. So her mother has already died as the movie starts, and we find out very little about the mother. There's not a flashback or really a backstory about who she was except a little snapshot, and we sort of see that they loved her, right? She right. and her sister, played by, played by Brie Larson, her younger sister. Their father is still alive, played wonderfully, I think, by Colin Quinn. Yes. And uh, and is in the late enough stages of MS that they're looking to put him in a home. Mm-hmm. And there's some tension between she and her sister about how nice a home they're going to put their father in, given that he was a pretty shitty father. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we see in the very, very opening scene before the credits where he's um, he's teaching his little girls that monogamy is unrealistic. Yes. Right? Is that the, the phrase that yes. they have to keep yes. reciting? Yes, monogamy is unrealistic. <laughs> Um, so, so throughout the movie, there's this figure of her father who's sort of an albatross around her neck, but also someone who's very important to her. I, I really loved the, the relationship with the father and how yeah. it was sketched, particularly as long as we're spoiling his, uh, the funeral oration that she gives for him. So he dies maybe three quarters of the way through the movie or mm-hmm. so. And, uh, and that was such a sudden tone shift when she stands up at the funeral and gives this talk about at once what an asshole she was and how he was her favorite person in the world. It really mm-hmm. it made me cry. Yeah. Oh, I cried a lot. Not only in that scene. Yeah, no, like, yeah, mostly in that scene. But I just, I think it feels very real. And that's the thing, like, most Judd Apatow movies do have, like, this kind of, this this sweetness to them um, that comes out when there's something that's tragic or actually very important. And so that, to me, was that moment where you see that Amy Schumer isn't just, like, her character isn't just a caricature of, like, this modern party girl. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's a very capacious movie in both good and bad ways. I, like mm-hmm. I said, I think it's a little bit too long. It contains some sequences that didn't seem to tonally belong at all. Like, again, jumping around, but that Marv Albert scene where the Bill Hader <laughs> character, we haven't even gotten to Bill Hader, the love interest in the movie, but the scene where he is somehow, like, coached yeah, coached yeah. by a combination of Marv Albert, Matthew Broderick, LeBron James, and who else is in is the it Chris Everett? Oh, and Chris Everett, exactly. Yeah. Um, because Bill Hader's character, who emerges as the romantic interest, is a sports doctor, right, which allows all these sports figures to come in and kind of give him an intervention about his girlfriend. Anyway, that scene was so surreal and yeah. sort of such a SNL sketch in the middle of yeah. a narrative you know, that I, I thought it, could, like it should have come that. out. You know, there's something to be said for like the very steady 90-minute, like everything is a very tight narrative. You know what I mean? Like the classic Hollywood screwball comedy where right. everything, like there's nothing weird. Sometimes I like that weird scene in there that you're like, what does this have to do with anything? Like clearly could have been on the cutting room floor, but takes you into another right. weird kind of untight place. So we need to backtrack a little bit because yeah. we haven't even established yeah, who Bill Hader is. And, um, <laughs> and in a way that it sort of makes sense that we've made him not instrumental because in some ways, as with the Jenny Slate movie Obvious Child, mm-hmm. I feel like this is a romantic comedy in which a couple is established, but the establishment of the couple is not the main story of the film. It no. really is more about the main character discovering her own truth, you yeah. know, and sort of getting a guy in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, but who Bill Hader plays is this doctor, 
Aaron is his first name. I can't mm-hmm. remember his last name. I don't name. think we know his last name. Yeah, maybe Aaron. we don't. Oh, Connors, I think. Dr. Aaron Connors, who's a sports medicine star. He operates on the knees of LeBron James and Amari Stoudemire and treats various um, famous athletes throughout. Me, like Amy Schumer, being not much of a sports fan, I can't name most of them. <laughs> but that becomes a running joke, too, that she's assigned by her editor, Tilda Swinton, to cover this story. And she knows nothing, knows and cares nothing about sports whatsoever. Yeah. Um, so she, after some awkward interactions with, uh, with Dr. Connors, she goes out on a date with him and starts dating him. And, uh, and then essentially, and here we sort of get to um, the piece that you wrote about this movie and about the post-feminism of this movie. Um, here we get into a space where the Amy Schumer character, who is the train wreck of the title, right, um, yeah. has to change her ways. She has to stop being the kind of uh, non-monogamous party girl that she's lived her entire 20s as. We don't know quite how old she is, but I assume she's around 30 somewhere, yeah. right? And uh, and she has to deal with the idea of a nice guy actually liking her and, and what's she going to do with it. Yeah, and I think, I mean, the narrative isn't, it doesn't depict her party girl ways as like, oh, I'm so free and everything's great and my life is wonderful. It's like she is exhausted and, like, disheveled by this lifestyle. And she's in some ways keeping up the front. This is, I think, what your post-feminism angle was, that she's she's keeping up the front of this have-it-all kind of modern young woman, right, who can yeah. be completely free with her body and feel totally good about it and who can, you know, drink and smoke weed, but it's no big deal and she'll still be great at her job the yep. next day. And I, I'm not quite sure that I love the way the movie handled her substance, quote, abuse, because right. you don't really – she doesn't actually seem to be an alcoholic. She no. seems to enjoy going out and drinking. We never see her get totally smashed or do anything really dangerous because she drinks. But part of that montage where she's kind of getting it together at the end involves her getting this huge box of liquor bottles, at which <laughs> you suddenly see that she has massive amounts. And I don't know. It just seemed to me like a very casual way to handle something like a drinking problem. To There's me, a big difference between I like to go out and party and, like, I am an Alcoholic. Yeah, no, I don't think it. I don't think it's that she was an alcoholic. I think there's a couple moments in the film where it suggests that when she feels too much emotion, she wants a drink. You know, not to like necessarily get wasted, but like that is what her coping mechanism right. has been when she's like, like when she figures out that she's falling in love with Bill Hader's character, she's like, I need a drink, right? Um, or, or, or she smokes pot also at yeah. some, some key moments. Yeah, I guess yeah, that's yeah. true. And so I think more you can read it as like she is trying not to use those things as a crutch to like take her away from the way that she's actually feeling, including affection and love. Right. So we've talked about Amy Schumer, Bill Hader, Colin Quinn. Um, the sister is Brie Larson. Um, one of the other major characters in this movie is a non-actor, as far as I know. Has LeBron James appeared in a movie before? No, but he's in Samsung commercials. I really like mm-hmm. him. <laughs> so he's proved his chops, his acting chops yeah. in Samsung yeah. commercials. So, yeah, he doesn't just sort of appear as a, a, a cute little cameo once in Bill Hader's office. He's his patient, but also his friend. Mm-hmm. And we see them do a bunch of stuff together, including play a game of horse that's just on the on the basketball yeah. court. It's yeah, yeah. just a complete route. And then <laughs> LeBron James can just kind of casually pluck the basketball out of Bill Hader's hands. And Bill Hader is not a short guy, but of yeah. course he looks like a tiny little elf in comparison to LeBron, so that's great. Um, but yeah, the character of LeBron James, the, the the character that he plays in the movie anyway, is this very funny sort of sweet guy who's, who's extremely emotionally attuned to Bill Hader's needs and really just wants him to, to find a girl and, and take it seriously. Yeah, so I think that they told him, you know, we want you to be like LeBron, like your real self, but more miserly. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> that's right, he, pick, he will pick up no checks. <laughs> and love Cleveland even more. And so there's really like he's just he's spoofing his image in a way that I think feels not fake. Like it just he seems like such a natural and charismatic actor. Yeah, those interactions are really, really endearing. 
you've stumbled across something pretty exciting here. If things look a little shinier or high-tech, that's because we're now in Futuropolis. Or rather, you're listening to Futuropolis, a new podcast from Popular Science on Panoply. Are your daydreams consumed by what food we might eat in a space colony or whether our bodies will someday be replaced with cyborg parts? Us too. We decided to stop dreaming and start asking some pretty smart scientists what life will be like in the future. I'm Brianna Draxler. And I'm Lindsay Cradwell. And we'll be your trusty guides to the world of tomorrow. Subscribe to Futuropolis to get every episode as soon as it comes out. Or search for Futuropolis on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. So I want I want to hear from you and also to try to remember for myself, what were some of the big laugh getters, the moments that you were saying that it was the apatow thing of starting a joke and then taking it further and further and further? Yeah, I saw this in a theater in Times Square that had been packed with people who had been just kind of roaming around on Times Square. Everyone was very excited to be there. And so the, every laugh was really amplified. But the scene when she's talking about how she's really scared that – he will find a tampon in the toilet. And then she's like <laughs> talking about like the different kinds. To her of, sister, right. Yeah, talking to her sister about the different kinds of tampons that one can possibly find in the toilet. And she's eventually is like, I'm talking about like a tampon that's like middle of the week, like has an ear growing up. <laughs> <laughs> and that felt like she might have improvised that at the moment because yeah. Brie Larson's laugh afterwards is like this elephant honk. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I loved when LeBron did this stuff about Cleveland. He's like, he keeps list, he keeps asking Bill Hader why he hasn't come to visit him in Cleveland. But he did go to visit him in Miami all the time. And then he just keeps like listing off these amazing things right. about Cleveland. Right, you know Cleveland. it's a family-friendly yeah, town, like, right? Cleveland is for families. <laughs> Yeah, I guess I guess the, for me the biggest the biggest laugh getting scenes would probably be sex scenes themselves. I think this movie is oh, yeah. is, is honest and kind of unromantic and and hilarious about sex in a way that you you might see it in a dude movie, but you don't see it that often in a chick movie. Yeah, her boyfriend as the movie starts, or you might call him boyfriend, the guy of the guys that she's dating that she's sees the most regularly and actually goes to movies with instead of just going to bed with him is played by John Cena, who's a who's a wrestler and a giant, muscular, muscle-bound dude and who just gives a really wonderful comic performance as this. I guess he's supposed to be a closeted gay guy and, and their sex together is just so strange and theatrical. <laughs> so great. And there's a scene where she asks him to talk dirty to her and he's unable to do it. He yeah. either starts talking about protein shakes <laughs> or... <laughs> <laughs> he's he kind of just going off into his own and his dream like mind. he 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 really wants to get married to her and his dream is for them to like have a bunch of boys and do crossfit together for the rest of their lives and those scenes i guess those those scenes were very early on in the movie so they just sort of made me know like we can get comfortable with this character she's going to take us you know she will take us deep into the dysfunction of her own life yeah but also highlights i think her unwillingness to like or her the her inability to believe that someone could love her Right. I mean, the image of sort of sex and what it is to be a sexy girl and a sort of successful girl, a young woman at the beginning of this movie is really kind of a dark one, even yeah. though, even though, she, as I say, I don't think she actually is an alcoholic. She's very funny and seems to enjoy her life. But she also just seems to have very high 
and bizarre expectations for herself as a, as a sexual being. Uh, the scene where she leaves the one night stand in Staten Island really yeah. early on in the movie and has like the classic walk of shame. But the high heel shoe thing is so perfect and yes. so realistic. Just the feeling of walking in high heel shoes when your feet are blistered down to the bone and they're basically torture implements. Yeah. So she has to take tiny, tiny little steps holding onto poles in order to just get down the on, street. On like this sidewalk in Staten Island and she has nowhere, no idea where she is. And it's not that she... I think that Schumer does a really good job of showing how she kind of – there's this self-loathing there, but also a confidence, right? So, like, it's not that she's like, oh, I'm such a whore. God, everything sucks. It's more like she has been told that this is a way that you empower yourself. But periodically there's just these moments of, like, well, this isn't – like, is this a life strategy? That right. And, and I think it's not until she sees actually what happens with her father and her father dying kind of – embittered and, you know, incapable of loving or being loved, that that really sparks her to think about her life differently. Yeah, a really, really sad detail in the father's story that I almost couldn't believe the movie did something this subtle is that is the last thing that they say to each other right she goes to visit him at the home and they kind of have a minor fight but it's not as if she storms out in a huff exactly and uh, and she leaves and says all right I'll see you later and then he says something like oh I don't I don't like it when you what does he say something like I don't like it when you leave mad at me or something like that. Oh. I can't remember what it is, but it's very much yeah. like not the last thing you want to hear your father say. And it's yeah. never referred back to. She never yeah, says, yeah, yeah. you know, that was awful that that was the last thing and I never visited him again. But that all becomes clear when she gets the phone call from her sister. Dad died. To me, I immediately thought, oh, how horrible that that was, you know, the last mm-hmm. exchange that they had. Um, so, yeah, I think the movie is quite sensitive in that way. It, it's, it's, it was more of a relationship movie than I expected, not just about the Amy Schumer, Bill Hader romantic mm-hmm. relationship, but about her relationship to her sister and her brother-in-law and her father after his death and, and her editor. You know, it really was about sort of awkward emotional situations and, and how you muddle through them. Yeah. Oh, and that reminds me that another great performance is from the kid who plays her step-nephew, like adopted nephew. That kid is just so like perfectly seven years old and earnest about everything, which is why in the beginning she's really repulsed by it because like that earnest love is something that she can't handle. Right. But then she's like, oh, I really like he is an amazing young little guy. Yeah. And it, it essentially it sort of takes the Bill Hader relationship falling apart for a while for her to realize that. Yeah. What about the scene where Hader goes to accept his award, his Doctors Without Borders yeah. award, and uh, and she takes a phone call in the middle of it? That was a, That's a scene I wanted to talk to you about because I actually felt that that's in that scene, the movie, the script itself, not just Bill Hader, was a little bit hard on her. Yeah. You know, I mean, essentially, it, it was really crass of her to take a, a work call in the middle of his speech. But she also just got a text saying, answer this call or you're fired from her bitchy boss who we know is talking serious. Yeah. I think that is kind of a cul- that scene is a culmination of a lot of things that have been like percolating in her life. So right before they go, Bill Hader's like, "Are you wearing that?" So it's the first time that she's felt like he has judged her. You know, so instead of saying like, "Oh, your body is beautiful, you're amazing, you're sexy." It's like maybe you're too much of all those things. Like you're out of bounds for this particular thing. So she, her confidence isn't high when she's walking in, and then her horrible misogynistic female boss calls her and she's like, but I have, okay, so this part of my life I'm not confident in. At least maybe I can, you know, keep my job, have this other thing that makes me feel like a whole person. And then that falls apart. And then that's when she starts smoking weed, like at this benefit. Right. And that's, and then Bill Hader is like, I can't trust you. Like, you know, 
all these different things. And that's so does that make sense? Like, that's how I viewed it. Yeah, it's a culmination. She did a lot of different behaviors that night that sort of separated them from each other and made her feel alienated. I guess I just sort of felt like if I were at that talk and I got that call, I'm not sure that I would be able to not take the call if I really thought that I would have no job in the morning. And I might have made that defense. I don't know. A part of me wanted to stand up to Bill Hader and say, well, wait a second, you know. Yeah. But then also, like, (laughs) she almost made him lose his job because she kept him up all night and he couldn't operate. Oh, yeah. That was a scene, again, that I felt like was almost from a drama rather than a comedy. It's so real, right? Staying up all night fighting with someone and then you're completely dysfunctional the next day. Yeah, Yeah, that 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 was an excellent thing to include. All right. Well, as long as we're spoiling, let's let's get toward the end of the movie. This movie does have, and these are some of the places that I felt it could have lost, it has some conventional um, rom-com moments, mm-hmm. like, for example, the separation montage with music. It's a short one, but there's that moment where the two of them aren't speaking to each other. I can't remember what song's on the soundtrack, but you see them each, you know, wandering through the city doing their separate things. It might have been the national, which would have been, like, very cliche, but I don't know. It's, and it's only part of a song. I remember thinking at least it's a short relationship <laughs> yeah. montage. But it, that is, to me, such a cliche that I'm really surprised any yeah. rom-com director would still do it without some kind of twist. Um, then what's the, what, what are the series of events by which she and Bill get back together? Part of it is the nephew, right, and her sort of softening toward her, yeah. her nerdy nephew. Mm-hmm. Um, and the alcohol. Throwing out the alcohol. And getting her the story about him to Vanity Fair. So it's essentially like... Getting fired. Getting fired itself. Oh, we didn't talk about why she gets fired. (laughs) Oh, Christ. So so Ezra Miller, in his second appearance in a movie with Tilda Swinton, by the way, I felt like it was kind of like a reunion (laughs) from uh, We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yes. So the the very handsome young Ezra Miller is is an intern at the snuff office. And uh, and then there's a scene late on during that separation period when she's kind of acting out because she misses Bill Hader. She she ends up having drunken sex with Ezra Miller. Not even sex. Like, it's just like... Dry humping. Yeah. (laughs) And he turns out to be 16, and then she gets fired for it. Well, and he also asks her to punch him in the face (laughs) as a sexual act. It's really so she it's gets a fired great, for punching a sixteen year old. It's a great like play on like what it's like to hit rock bottom. You know, it's not just like, oh, you hook up with someone you regret. She's done that a bunch. This is like you hook up with a sixteen year old person from your job and then your the mom catches you <laughs> after you've punched him. <laughs> like that is a bottom. As Tw- Tilda Swinton puts it the next day, if it was just the screwing a minor or just the punching, <laughs> but the two of them combined, yeah. I just can't keep you. Yeah. But losing her job, of course, turns out to be the best thing that ever happened to her because it was a horrible job. Uh, she sells the, the piece, How I Fucked My Source, <laughs> to Vanity Fair. And uh, and then and then the cheerleader dance, which I think you and I may differ on. I think it's a really cute, sweet thing to see Amy Schumer dancing with the Knicks cheerleaders. Yeah. And she's a really good dancer, as we've learned from several skits <laughs> on her show. But uh, but I don't know quite narratively that I know why that needs to be in there. And I also did not love that the very last image of the movie is a bar- is barely a twist on the classic two people kiss in public while yeah. others applaud. Yeah. I, you know, the first time I saw it, I was also very much like, I don't know how I feel about this. Like... Even though I was a cheerleader, you know, this is something that, like, her dislike for cheerleaders, like, the first time she sees the Knicks cheerleaders when they go to a game, about halfway through the movie, she yells at them. She's like, you're the reason we're going to lose the right to vote. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so she's established herself as anti-cheerleader, right? right. And, then, and then Bill Hader says, wait, they're, they're real athletes. You know, they're, yeah. they're, doing, they're doing very difficult things, and I treat some of them. And we see several, like, them as real humans a couple of times. Yeah, I'm not anti-cheerleader, and yeah. I'm not anti the, the, the presence of cheerleaders in this movie. But 
something about the fact that we go from her saying you're going to lose us the right to vote and cheerleaders are really sexist to her appearing in a cheerleader costume and doing the sexy dance with them. Yeah. Right. And then kind of winning the guy back. It, to me, it was a little bit of like a grease ending. Yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 And I think I mean, as I thought about it more, I came to think like, OK, so maybe part of the reason that she decided to do this as a way of winning him back. It wasn't like, oh, look, I can be cute like a cheerleader. It's more, here, I was very acerbic and very, like, angry about these people who are sincere in their cheer, right? Right. <laughs> and so instead, I'm going to show you... That I accept that world and that I accept you. Not even, world. like, I accept, like, wearing a cheerleader uniform. It's more like... I want to stop looking at the world in this particular way. Mm -hmm. But I totally agree with you that it reverts to something that I wish was like a a little bit less cliched, a little less in the rom-com tradition and a little bit more transgressive since the rest of the movie really feels like like it's doing something different. You know, I watched uh, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days the day afterwards, because I had heard a lot of people in the audience being like, it's really a lot like this. How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days is just classic early 2000s post-feminist rom-com. Like, you have someone who has it all. Right. But really what she needs to have it all is a man. Right. Right. And this is, like, the inverse of that. So when you say post-feminist, what you're really saying is is sort of pseudo-post-feminist, right? Something that is an ideology that's claiming to be, be beyond feminism right. while, while still implementing all of its tenets. Yes, exactly. And so I think that, like, the real change here is that instead of suggesting that, like, a man comes in and is that, like, ultimate puzzle piece that makes fulfillment happen, it's more that, like— Here's a person who wants to love you and show you that you are a person worthy of love. I think because of the subtlety of the writing and 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 just the the connection between Schumer and Hayter and the strength of their performances, that the ending does feel like that. It does feel like two human beings struggling to try something together rather than happily ever after. I'm a cheerleader and everything's good. Yeah, yeah. You know, but but there was maybe just a little bit too much of happily ever after. I'm a cheerleader. Yeah. for me. Well, and also the cheerleading dance, like she's clearly she's so bad at it. Um, oh, and she's like, awesome at it I until mean, she, she does like, the flip. Yeah. <laughs> No, but she, like, she is not that cheerleader. Like, that is not who she has become. And so in some ways that differentiation really shows, like, okay, I'm not perfect, but this is why you love me, is, like, that I am the type of person who would be willing to try this and, like, be silly. I, that I got. But maybe that's why I wanted to see the struggle. I wanted to see a moment where she called up the cheerleader that she knew slightly, right? And yeah. said, like, can you guys teach me a routine? All that, I think, would have made it less of a fantasy fairy tale feeling yeah. at the ending and more like here is a person doing a gesture, a generous gesture for the person that they love. But then it would be even longer. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> to tell you the truth for all my complaints, I could have done with 20 more minutes of this movie. It was a very agreeable watching. Yeah, totally. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming in to oh, spoil. Do it again soon. Yeah. Our producer today is Bailey Constis. The managing producer of Slate Podcasts is Joel Meyer, and the executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.